All right. So how was your meeting with your efficient? Um, it was good. I mean, he's somebody that I went to college with and my fiance went to college with. They were sweet mates freshman year and he and I knew each other from singing in college and stuff like that. So it wasn't like a getting to know you. It was just like talking about you and Mike will be married by a classmate. Yeah, but I mean, he's also a pastor. He's a pastor, and he's well, also I, yeah, a I don't pastor think he just, of comparative <laughs> religion. Not a reunion at random. You <laughs> <laughs> do. Right, right. Okay, so how's the transcript coming along? It's a pain in the butt. This transcript technology is not everything it's supposed to be. The transcript gets all screwed up when somebody laughs in the middle of it. And it, but that's like, why you're fixing it. Well, I know. I don't want it to be everything it's so supposed to be. So can I tell be. you something that really irks me about the transcript? I want it to use correct language. And instead it says gonna, gotta, wanna, gimme. And I go through and I blanket change those to going to, got kind of to, squirrely, want but okay. to. If that's what you want to do, then you're in charge of it. So do what you must. I know. I just don't like it. And sometimes it transcribes cause, you know, apostrophe C-A-U-S-E to c-u-z and it's like oh my god i'm not a 26 year old plus i don't yeah. really want ai to know colloquialisms i don't know if it's ai it's been well i guess it is ai of course right? it's ai who else is doing it some guy <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i guess i could pay for some, some guy, guy with a it, big but... marker is scribbling it down as fast as he can right exactly and amanuensis who you know, that's a name for a scribe, right? Amenuensis? Is that how you say it? Amenuensis. Um, it sounds like something, sounds like a heavy period. <laughs> um, It does. Like, I'm taking full dravi for my severe amenuensis. Um, okay. Amenuensis, a literary or artistic assistant, in particular one who takes dictation or copies manuscripts. Hey, I learned something. Cool. All right. Yeah. And if AI gets that right, I'll be very impressed. Right. Yeah. So anyway, it's A-M-A-N-U-E-N-S-I-S. Are you listening, AI? <laughs> we just taught you something that's going to make you that much better and replace us that much sooner. <laughs> Happy to serve. So we talked in this episode to Anne Imig, who... I'm so I... glad we got her on. I was very familiar with Listen to Your Mother and her whole series that she did. I was very familiar with her work. But I didn't know her at all until you said, hey, I want to have her on. And then I looked her up and was like, oh, 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 she's the listen to your mother lady. Okay. That's yeah, well, cool. she's not famous per se for her work in coaching. I mean, you know, I mean, she's yeah, I just mean, doing her thing. Well, I think that's interesting because she did do this thing that was the thing was famous, right? Listen to your mother was famous. Yeah. And then she switched career direction to go into coaching. And I'm thinking it had to be a little bit easier for her to do that because she was famous for listen to your mother, but she wasn't famous necessarily under her own name to have to sort of fight that brand already when she was going into coaching. I think that's cool. Yeah. Well, I thought what was really cool is she basically started talking about herself and by the end of the hour she was our marriage counselor <laughs> or our divorce counselor <laughs> we were telling her everything we were unburdening what it was like and right like 15 years ago man things really sucked and she wanted to know everything you could tell she's a good listener because she elicited all this information yeah. from us like how we've changed and how we get along now and yeah she had us spilling our guts so if you don't know our story, you can listen to this episode and listen to and interview us about what it was like in 2006 and uh, fill in the blanks. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? I had some sort of gurgle. Could you hear it? through? Oh, my God. Is it going to come the podcast? I just muted to drink some water. And then came off mute and made some weird, like, gurgling noise in my throat. It was like, so very how will AI transcribe that? in july man <laughs> well having endured madison in july 
where is nice in July? I mean, it's unseasonably right. nice here right now, but it is often a hundred degrees and yeah. 80% yeah. humidity, you know? That's but yeah, that rhythm and booms we went to, uh, I forget what year it was, but that was sweltering. Yeah. And you like fireworks more than I do. I'm not a huge fan of I fireworks. do. I'm kind of over them, though. I got to say, I've <laughs> inhaled too much of Canada over the past month. Yes. I have an entirely different perception of that. Yeah. And just smelling when someone has a fire gets an entirely different reaction from me because now it's like, oh, crap, more of this. So, yeah. hey, and when could we have met? It must have been at one of the blog hers. And um, I met you, I think, through Amy Windsor. Yeah, and I don't Amy know if I, listened to your mother was up and running yet. But, no, uh, we went to our first blog her in Chicago in 2009, I think, because she lived in Madison and we met here in town. I think we met through our blogs and then met in real life and adored each other. And then we were like, well, I mean, there's this blog her thing, two and a half hour car ride away. Should we go? I'd been blogging for like a few months. You know, that early on, I had no idea of conferences or I had started making blog friends, but it was all new. I certainly would never have gone. I don't know if she would have gone either, but it was such a fortuitous thing because when you meet a blog friend early on, you encourage each other, you teach each other, and you kind of figure it out together. And so we've been friends ever since. We we were each other's like blog wife for conferences for years. So you started blogging in 2008, and when did Listen to Your Mother start? 2010. That's a nice accelerated launch point. Yeah. So the origin story is that I saw that community keynote in 2008, and I was a theater person, first and foremost, and writing had reconnected me to an audience, and I was really fascinated. I also had this social work background. So I sat in the audience for that first community keynote, and I was really surprised by how compelling live readings could be with non-performers. And it definitely got the wheels turning. Um, it wasn't like I was sitting right there going, I'm going to do this. But the other part is that we had lived in Chicago for 10 years and we're back in Madison where everything is so easy to navigate. I'd also done time in ad sales. So like you can see how like the sponsor piece, the performing piece, it was all swirling around in there. And then it just happened to be, I think it was winter of 2009, I started thinking about doing it. And then that like little marketing piece was like, oh, Mother's Day. And then because we were in Madison, I was just like, I'm just going to do this. Besides Amy and myself, it's not like Madison had a blogging community. And I was so struck by the bearing witness and the sharing going on and the huge creativity. And I was like, I want my community to get to experience this. People who will never go on a blog. The venue, the Barrymore is a big music venue. And again, like all these different pieces of my brain, you know, on a Sunday, on a Mother's Day Sunday, they're not doing anything. And they're like a really known for being active in the community. And so the director liked the idea, the guy, Steve Sperling, he still runs it. And they made it possible for us to do that first show. And then because I was a blogger, like it all expanded quickly from there. Like, it's so interesting that you are saying that in Madison, it was easy to do because it's so small. Because I think that's something that people don't realize they think that if you want to do something, you have to move to New York or LA or something like that. And it's so much harder there. I think since yeah. I moved to Detroit, I am seeing all kinds of creativity that happens in Detroit all the time, because you can afford to just try something. It's not going to cost you five figures to put up a show, right? You just need some kind of space. And sometimes it's just a vacant lot that, you yeah, know, it cost me nothing. Yeah. And I built a model where it would cost, it could cost people nothing to do this show on purpose. And right. the reason it felt doable was my perspective of having navigated a big city for a decade, having worked in really cutthroat advertising where I was accustomed to picking up the phone and asking for a million dollar budget. So part of it was just, this is easy. You know, right. yeah, this is Mayberry by comparison. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, the, the flip side, though, is I will say Madison is full of incredible talent. So like I started my professional life as a stage actor and I've been recently working very hard to get back into it. And people make assumptions like, oh, you must be a big fish in a small pond. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You know, people <laughs> move from New York when they want to have a family and they move to places like Madison. And there are it's an incredible literary scene here. Like Madison's full of talented people. But the make your own opportunity sense, yes. Yeah, well, that's where the onion came from. You know, yeah. that it was 
when it was still a print publication you could find in the little boxes on the corner. I mean, that's when yeah. it was, you could argue, that was, those were its best years. I met my husband at a theater. He was a drummer in the pit, and I was performing. And one of our first conversations, we started talking about The Onion, and we were laughing and remembering the same articles. And it's like part of why I found mm. for sure, because we like shared that same, you know, that's language. That's cool. And, yeah. We'll always have The Onion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At least in our minds. Um, well, it's interesting you mentioned that too, because you grew up in Madison, right? Yep, I did. So you know the place pretty well. At the same time, though, as stable as that comes across, growing up in a nerdy Midwest college town, and I've become well-versed in that my own self here in Ann Arbor, your childhood was kind of chaotic, wasn't it? Yeah, I had a crazy family situation, lots of like divorce and remarriage, but the original divorce and remarriage included two sets of parents who ended up marrying each other in essence like it sounds like a swap it wasn't a swap it happened over three years it happened very organically but it was still you can imagine the the like entangled nutso family system and the beautiful thing is i had lots of adults who loved me it wasn't traumatic for me it but it was a lot to navigate and that also gave me incredible skills for the rest of my life. Uh, it was the 80s. We were like more like latchkey kids. My parents all worked. They were like really happily into their, these second marriages. And we just like, you know, I spent a lot of time on my own, taking the bus, riding my bike, coming and going. And sometimes my own kids, when they, you know, hear me talk about the 80s and being a kid, they kind of wish they had that. Yeah, it's a whole different vibe now. Yeah, I even like would fly as an unaccompanied minor. I think the first time I did that was age nine to go visit my grandparents in Brooklyn, New York. And like, those are incredible independence fostering memories. And yeah, I had no idea what it was like to live in a nuclear family in one house. I was in co-custody my whole life until college. Yeah. And it wasn't easy. And I'm the youngest and there is birth order matters this whole situation was for sure harder on my older siblings who were going through this as teenagers and not children, you know, not little kids. Mm -hmm. But my parents still live in town and life has taken them in different directions, but they're happy. And I always wanted to come back here and live here. So I think that says a lot, chaotic or not, about, you know, my, my childhood and my feelings about my family in Madison. But now you've been married almost half your life, <laughs> which is cool. It is cool. Um, yeah. I and feel you like found lucky. that stability that was kind of elusive when you were a kid and also have moved into coaching and helping others, which is a very caretaker thing to do. Yeah. I can totally see how someone in your position early kind of gravitates into the arts and gravitates into the entrepreneurial aspect as well, would listen to your mother. That fulfilled a lot of skill sets for you. It seemed like the perfect confluence of a lot of things you knew how to do well. And now that you're in this new realm of, of coaching people, how does that fit with the sum total of your choices so far? And what's the most interesting thing you've learned about working with people that you might not necessarily have anticipated? Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is actually the most natural and organic thing to me and my personality that I could be doing. And if you ask people who've known me a long time, they've been saying for years, like, go become that therapist. You do this for free all the time. And I did get a master's in social work along my winding path. And I always thought I would end up being a therapist. Really? Oh, you it did. Was, okay. Yeah, I wanted to be a stay at home mom. Again, this is a funny like reaction maybe to my childhood, but also maybe not like I just was the little girl who loved to play with dolls and loved to play house. And I just always knew I wanted to be a mom. I, I just that was the one thing I knew. So I thought becoming a stay at home mom was going to be the answer to my entire life. And of course, <laughs> it wasn't. And even though I liked it and it was wonderful, it goes by really fast. And uh, my husband used to travel constantly when my kids were little. And blogging is how I got that connection, that creative spark back. And that kind of threw me for a loop. I thought I was done with theater and that connection to an audience. So blogging really surprised me when I saw how immediately it just like, I just fell right back into wanting to achieve and excel and perform so I didn't become the therapist. I was at home with my kids. And then I became a blogger and listened to your mother, which used all of those skills I learned in social work school, creating safe spaces for people to tell stories and fostering groups through the process and 
it became this really a mostly women's leadership incubator as people who had never produced events or directed anything, learned how to do this around the country. Um, so I used all those skills, but it wasn't until the pandemic when my, my kids were growing so quickly and I was again struggling with creativity and I had a book out and it didn't sell and or I was my agent was trying to sell a book that didn't sell and I realized I need to figure out the next chapter of my life that's not inextricably tied to my kids. They're growing up and moving away. So I thought I'm finally going to be this therapist. But by now, my license was long expired. I never worked in the traditional social work world. And I was trying to earn my CEUs during the pandemic. And I was just feeling adrift. And I was feeling like I'm going to work and work to try to get licensed and then clinically licensed. And I'm still not going to be making money. And I just couldn't even see the path. And I myself have worked with a career coach who said like, well, let's talk about coaching again. Like we've talked about it over the years, but never in a serious way. And it just was a light bulb. It was like a totally natural progression from what I was doing with Listen to Your Mother, like the way I had comported myself online all these years. It was always really important to me to like be careful with what I was saying, even as a humorist. Coaching was something that I could bring to the people that I was already connected with, which is a little different than therapy. If I had become a therapist, I think it would feel different if you like Googled your therapist and there were just like pages and pages of all this like stuff. Like that's a little weird. Yeah. yeah um, absolutely. Whereas it's, yeah. And where it's like an asset in the coaching space. That was a long, I talk in paragraphs. Sorry. <laughs> I think that's a really good insight about therapy versus coaching because I do a lot of business coaching and I do a lot of coaching with people about personal things that relate to their business, right? I mean, I think everybody does. All coaches do, right? If you're a life coach, you end up doing work stuff. If you're a work coach, you end up doing life stuff. And I think you're really right about that. People don't want to know too much about their therapist at all, because it's sort of like, you almost have to have a morality clause to be a therapist. People see it like elementary school teachers, you know, but also like be a moral guide somehow. If you're telling someone your most vulnerable parts of your life in a crisis moment and you're like, she's a humorist or whatever, I'm seeing her in these videos, like that does not foster a feeling of safety. Even if it's, I could be the most, and I would be the most ethical boundary therapist, but there are ways that you create safety that have nothing to do with explicit outright agreements. And that would turn people off. It would turn some people off for sure. Yeah. But I think in coaching, the more experiences you've had, it just feels like you have a b- bigger tool set. Yeah. And, um, you know, we all, a lot of us who become coaches have been coaching in informal ways before we decided to get our certification or whatever. And certainly I did a lot of coaching through Listen to Your Mother. And I, I think I had an earned trust from the people that I know online that could only help my coaching business. Yeah, I would agree. But Doug, there was another part of your question. I, I forgot now. <laughs> no, I hear you. I'm, uh, I'll am i ask questions in paragraphs and people lose the thread halfway through. Um, but I hear you. I, we're all coaches here. You know, I coached second grade soccer one year and um, I'm totally right there. I'm, I'm same, empathizing same. with all the struggles. Same, same. <laughs> I mean, I think it's important that I did coach just the one year. <laughs> because literally no one else would do it. And they said, please, God, all we need is a warm body. And, oh, my uh, God. That's how I ended up managing a team. Yeah, one year was plenty. <laughs> Especially the parents who are so opinionated. I'm like, I'm just doing you guys a favor here. If I'm right. not here, this team doesn't happen. I'm just saying right. don't run into each other. The other parents would be like, I can do this better. I'm thinking, then please do please it. Do. You were asked earlier. <laughs> please. The second half of the question was along the lines of, A lot of your clients are about our age and thereabouts and are kind of at a crossroads. So what sort of things do you talk about with people our age and what similarities do they have with what you're going through? Well, there's really good news here. The basis I use for coaching and the framework is positive psychology. And we are lucky enough to be alive in a time where researchers can and have learned so much from brain scans and about how directly we can impact our own mood, which is our ability to enjoy our life. So learning to become a positive psychology coach and studying it changed my own experience of the world tremendously. 
so much of my feeling of self was based on external validation or hyperachievement and whatever realm you're in, a lot of people can identify with that. For others, it's money or relationships. It's this whole idea of I'll be happy when, fill in the blank. You know, it turns out those I'll be happy whens are really only account for a small piece of what I'll, I will call our well-being pie, like if it was a pie chart. Half of it is our DNA, okay? So that's good news or bad news. You know, if you have a more depressive DNA or a happier DNA set point for your uh, mood, you can't change that. But what's thrilling is there's a significant part of our mood that we can impact. And that's what positive psychology is all about. And when people come to me, sometimes they are coming because they're not sure they want to stay in their job. Sometimes they're coming to me because they have a project or a dream that they want to get off the ground and they haven't been able to motivate or get clarity. A lot of times when we start talking, what they realize is like, I don't even know who I am anymore. I Mm -hmm. lost my spark. I don't know where to find it. And that's a really scary place to be in. But what a relief when I can tell them there are tools that we can use that will change your life. And the flint you know, and steel, oh, if you will, that will bring the spark back. The actual yeah. tools that yeah. you can slam together until the spark returns. Yeah, that's right. And it's not slamming. It's not hard work. It's learning to use the right side of our brain. So our left brain is really overused because our brains were built for, you know, evolutionary purposes and to keep us alive. And you know, there's a ton of studies and literature about the way that we still operate so much from that part of our brain. And this other right side of our brain, generally speaking, is where wisdom, intuition, creativity, so much more positive emotion, peaceful, more calm, that's where we access it. And just practicing, it's like going to the gym for your body, but for your mind. And it is something I will have to do every day for the rest of my life. You're not like, I'm happy now. And happy is not even a word that's accessible for some people. But it might be like, wow, I just feel so much more calm. I finally feel curious again. I finally feel interested in things again. Like the spark is different for everyone. But that's the good news. And also we continue to change. So we're fed this narrative. People don't change. People don't change. It's actually not true. We do change. And that's really good news as we're looking at the rest of our lives. That's really hopeful news. Whether you are going through a divorce or you are grieving, knowing that it can feel like this is how it's always going to be. We go through these highs and lows and we come out at this baseline, but all the research shows we can learn how to lift that baseline. I was just chatting with my son about this. He and I just watched a uh, double feature with um, Lost in Translation Mm -hmm. and Her. Mm, I haven't seen her, but I remember Lost in Translation a little bit. Are you familiar with the premise of her? I know it. it's like a, a robot or some AI situation. Yeah. Joaquin Phoenix plays a guy who's just really, he's just broken up with his wife. He and falls Scarlett in love with Johansson, his operating right? system voiced by Scarlett Johansson. And he says this line that my son and I talked about where he says, I just feel like I've already felt everything I'm going to feel. Mm. And... Mm. Everything from now on is going to be some diluted version of that. Oh, Yeah, that line just hit me right in the sternum. And yeah. so if you're in that situation, I mean, granted, the ideal situation is to enlist the help of someone who can kind of get outside your head yeah. and coach you through that. But if you're on your own, what sort of stock can you take to recognize that you will feel new things between now and the end? If that feeling, when that feeling happens, and I've had that feeling or a similar feeling, it's a really good indicator that you need new tools. Whatever tools you've used in the past, they're not going to work forever and you need to change it up and you might need to ask for help. And sometimes it can be a perspective shift. I want to share. I went to this. There's this wonderful Buddhist writer. Her name is Karen Mazin Miller. I went to one of her silent retreats, even though I'm Jewish, you know, there's something called a Jubu, like a Jewish Buddhist, but I went to one of her silence. <laughs> I've met That's another podcast episode. Right there. I've met There's a, yeah. plenty of Catholic Buddhists, but I didn't know there were enough Jewish Buddhists to have a cute a slang. Jubu. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> and I don't consider myself a Buddhist, but you know, all of the schools, you know, of faith, as well as the positive psychology stuff, there's nothing new. It's all using, you know, these ancient truths. I was telling her something similar, like my fear about midlife is I feel like it's all downhill from here. My parents are still healthy. Like my kids are just going to grow up and leave. And like the beautiful thing about being healthy and living a long life is that you now look forward to losing everyone that you love and losing your health. You know, life is lost. And she just said to me, well, downhill is the most fun way to go. And it just made me (laughs) a picture of like a kid rolling down a hill. Like what's more fun than going downhill? And you can let go. I've always remembered that. It was such an awesome, like totally organic shift in perspective that she gave me, like full of joy and letting go getting some education. You don't have to hire a coach, but just knowing that there are things that you can do and finding them, whether it's a coach or checking out books. The one thing I will say is that to make real change in your life, a lot of like the figures and things that I'll be sharing come specifically from positive intelligence, which is a system that I use myself and I coach others through. And it's evidence-based. It's amazing work with data from 500,000 people over 30 countries. And to sustain real change, only 20% is insight. So like that book or that TED talk or that idea or that thing somebody told you like Karen Mason Miller, that can be a shift for you and it can stick with you. To sustain real change, like 80% of it is practice and doing something about it. And that's what I why I'm so passionate about this positive intelligence work is it's the means of delivering that 80%. And in terms of, you know, you hear about like practicing gratitude and there are things that are clinically shown to boost your mood. Gratitude is one of them, but you have to make a practice of it. You can't just remember to say thank you to someone. So it has to be intentional. Working on savoring when something's going well, asking your spouse or your kid detailed questions about it. When they have a win, draw that moment out. Our brains are wired for the negative. No one should feel bad of like, I'm just a Debbie Downer. I am always going to the negative. That is what our brain is wired to do. It is harder work to pull up the positive and keep it in the front of your mind. And it takes dedication and practice. I keep like a whole list of coaching wins on my binder. Pages and pages of little things I call process wins. I did my social media for the week. I wrote my newsletter. I had a great consultation. I don't care if the person hires me or not. So encouraging people to keep track of when things are working or going well and look and revisiting it because we don't hold on to what works. We hold on to what's not working. We really can change our brain that way. I think the keeping track is so key. And I think a lot of people just don't keep track. We don't think of mental health, mood, our little mood deviations from moment to moment. Right. We don't think of those as being important or lasting. I had depression for like 36 years from the time I was 11 until um, until a couple of years ago. And I would occasionally go into big deep troughs. I have some, I think, interesting theories about depression. And my dad has been significantly depressed my entire life. And so it's just a family thing. Yeah. I used to do all kinds of things to get myself out of these troughs. And then I figured out that the best thing I could do was write down what I had done and how many days it had taken to get me out of the trough. And Mm. then I could go back and look when I was down deep again, I could go back and look at my record and say, I have gotten myself out how many times? I, I am That's a person right. who can get myself out of the trough. This is what works. And I can do this again. I have the ability to do it. And that keeping track, I think, really was like the key to me being able to live with depression and live with joy. Like I always well, and- sort of thought I was the most positive, depressed person I knew, which is, you know, <laughs> like it's yeah, weird, no, right? I get that. People with depression also see the beauty and pain of the world so keenly. So I, yeah. I get that. I totally yeah. get that. And you're tracking what you did 
it's interesting because the skills like so so positive intelligence specifically was based on positive psychology, performance science and cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Yeah. And having the skills to stop thinking about thinking is how you just get more anxious and more depressed and that's what our brains do if we don't know otherwise. So positive intelligence is about building this mental muscle where we become aware of the thinking and we stop and we tune into our senses deeply for 10 seconds. This is straight up cognitive behavioral therapy if you've ever done that. And then that allows us to shift into a different part of our brain. It slows you down and you can make a different choice, not out of your thinking brain. And that's essentially what I'm hearing is like, you found things that worked, you wrote Mm -hmm. them down, and then you shifted your perspective to, I get in these pits of despair and I get back out. And it reminds me of the client who said, she was so frustrated with herself. She's like, I always come up with these workout plans and I do them for a while and then I always fail. And I said, what I'm hearing you say is then you come back again. You always come back, right? right? Like, so you don't sustain the same workout or the same diet for your entire life. Welcome to humanity, right? Right. That is actually hope and action. And it might not always feel happy. What's your other choice, right? Like my other choice was just lie down and die. That's right. But a lot of people get stuck there. Yeah. And well, they lie people, down and die. They're not all, are they always failing or are they only remembering their failures? A hundred percent, Doug. I'm so glad you said that because also what we remember when people say I had a bad day, if you had a whole log of their day, it was probably one bad thing or maybe yeah. two bad things. And there, we forget the 20 things that went just fine or good. Our brains are not wired that way. We have And to that's work the nature it. of this data-driven work yeah. that you're doing. Yeah. Because I keep asking you know, you, you had a background you, in your MSW training. Yeah. How much of that do you find yourself using as part of your daily work? How much of the overlap is there I between? I think it's context. I think it's why people feel comfortable with me. I think there's it's not an accident that in Listen to Your Mother, the brand was Listen and then to your mother. Okay. We had fathers. We had everyone's. Okay. Knowing how to listen is definitely something I was born with and learned more about in social work school. What I like about positive intelligence and positive psychology is like not clinical language, like everyday language. The founder of positive intelligence, Shirzad Shamin, worked really hard to bring the system down to like red, yellow, blue, like the primary colors. So I use a lot of his language because it's everyone can relate to it and it's accessible and it's non judgmental. A lot of people are really comfortable talking about mental health, but of course, that stigma still continues. And so um, even the idea of mental fitness is kind of this kind of language to make it accessible for everyone. So I think the master's work is part of who I am. And I'm not diagnosing people. And if people are in crisis or in trauma, that's not a good time for coaching. Uh -uh. No, no. You know, I was thinking if we had a word cloud of the discussion so far, one of the most common terms that would come up is positive. And since we live in the upside down now, even the yeah. word positive has negative connotations. Yeah, it does. So when you're well, talking to people about positivity yeah. and you want to retain the initial meaning of what positivity is, yeah. independent of the fact that it's kind of veered into toxic, toxic positivity. positivity. Right. Or spiritual what? bypassing. Right. Yeah. People think that it's spiritual bypassing. Yeah. I have a couple things that I do. First of all, I don't talk about happiness a lot. Positivity is a little different than happiness. Yeah, happiness also, is overrated. Um, <laughs> well, I think happiness is a result, not a goal, right? But also like it's a every, side effect. For some people, like people experience positive emotions in really different ways. So for some people, it can look like joy and happiness. And for others, it can be serenity and awe. And like learning about the realm of all the different kinds of positive emotions really helped people to understand that I'm not saying let's get happy. And well, even they're saying parents shouldn't tell their kids, I just want you to be happy because that puts pressure on the kid to be happy. And if they're not, they failed. Well, I actually think this is a great example for where we are in life right now, because I think one of the hardest, most emotionally painful thing for parents is to allow our children to be grown adults in this really hard world. And that like we can't make them happy. We can hardly make ourselves happy. It's a hard time to be happy. And just that reality of 
yeah, how would you like somebody, another adult telling you to be happy all the time? And not that we're telling our kids to be happy, but it's just innate in us to want our kids to be happy and to try to do that. And I think there's this realization of like, they're an adult now and this world is hella crazy. But the other thing I want to say is I actually am so sensitive to this issue of toxic positivity that I check in with friends who I know will be honest with me who are struggling and say like, please let me know. I never want to come off as Pollyanna. Um, I do have a naturally low mood and darkness within me. And I think that really helps is that I am very honest. Like the reason I'm drawn to this work and need this work is I don't wake up every morning feeling like the world is full of promise and possibility. You know, I have to work on it myself. And I think that keeps me grounded and helps me communicate that first and foremost, positive psychology honors life's struggles as inherent to being a human. It just gives you more options when you learn how to use it and develop this part of your brain. Well, and it sounds like it works for with you from where you are, right? So if you have depression, it's not saying, hey, we're going to cure you, right? No. It's just, right. you can be happier within the depression. I mean, for me, depression wasn't sadness. I don't think for right. people, depression is, it's just numbness, right? So it depends. Like, yeah. Some people yeah. experience it as disconnection, numb, numbness. Isolation. Yeah. yeah. You're less resilient to sadness when you're depressed, but I don't think sadness is the essence of depression. So this idea that you could be doing something to be more positive and feel more positive wherever you are. Even if you're yes. in the middle of depression, if you're in the middle of anxiety, if you're in the middle of all of this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's not like everyone throw your meds away. It's the opposite. It's these are just wherever you are, <laughs> yes. whatever you're doing. Like, do not you know, throw your meds please away. Please don't. Yeah. Please don't do that. <laughs> if you want to get off your meds, you need to titrate them with a professional and then see. But <laughs> do you work with a lot of people on meds or is this oh, kind I of- think most? I think they can coexist. It's not often a converse, always a conversation that comes up. It does sometimes, but I think that's a part of life for so many of us these days and a really helpful tool when used properly. And then there's the whole, like, everything's changing so fast. You know, there's microdosing. Weed is legal in places. I mean, there's things I know nothing about and I definitely don't pretend to. Are those details that you feel compelled to share with your clients? Just as it is that a salient piece of info to say, I'm currently on medication X? It's not a clinical situation, typically, yeah. coaching. One of my jobs, whether it's overt or not, is people feel better after they talk to me. So I'm just really interested in, let's talk about what's working. Let's talk about what the next step is. What do you want to make sure we cover today? If you're really happy with what we did at the end of this session, what would this look like? It's very task and future oriented. And I mean, there's always room if someone's really struggling to talk about what's going on. And, and you know, medication can come up, but I am not like evaluating people. It's not a clinical situation. Doug, have you ever been in coaching? I mean, nope. aside from when I've tried to tell you what to do and you don't pay any attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find that if you get your ex-wife to give you advice, it's good to do the exact opposite. <laughs> I love your dynamic. Obviously, you two use humor very effectively. Good <laughs> well, job. It's been 15 years, right? Yeah. Like, we've well, been divorced we for twice as long as we were married, you know? So, so yeah. you've gotten really good at it. And I love that. Yeah. And here's a couple's tip that I love from Martin Seligman, who's kind of, you know, the father of positive psychology. He talks about when something's going well with his wife, he, he wrote about her getting an award, getting a phone call about an award she'd gotten for a photograph she had taken. And what he did was ask her lots of questions about it. What exactly did they say? Why do you think they chose that photo over other ones? So you're drawing out the celebration, which is going to help you better remember it and hold it in your mind. So like I use these tactics secretly with my family. So I have a son who's abroad right now. And when he is telling me about what he's seeing, I am asking for more and more and more details and like, that is how we savor. Otherwise, yeah. that was another thing that was causing me misery before I started learning about positive psychology. I couldn't take in the good things in life. Everyone would say like, oh my gosh, isn't this amazing? Listen to your mother. Can you believe it? And I'd be like, no, I actually really cannot believe it. <laughs> like I can't, <laughs> I can't take it in. And so learning more about how to do that, whether it's the everyday wins, these, these lists that I make, these process wins, or it's just 
getting more curious with the people you love about what's going on in their life. Curiosity in general is something I so admire in my husband and other people, and I didn't really think I had it. I had it about certain things, but my strengths of being hyper-focused and getting stuff done didn't lead me into a curious mind, often to the detriment of my mood and pessimism, I would say, like especially about the state of our world, right? Because Madison is this crazy dichotomy of like always on the top of the best cities to live in the U.S. at the same time as like the absolute worst outcomes for Black children, horrible incarceration rate. You know, it's very racist in the It seems like there's a way. lot of footage from the Capitol of protests yeah. in, yes, in Madison. Yes. That's one of the more so it's this huge, steady uh, locations of unrest. Yeah. yeah, it's a huge contradiction in the city. And I remember somebody saying, well, if you could imagine, like, what would you dream for Madison? And I could not go there. And I felt embarrassed that I couldn't. And I also felt shame. And these tools, this positive psychology stuff, it helps you get more curious. And it's not hard. It's just asking more questions and opening up more. And it's so good for your your mental health and your relationships and just not knowing. I think what I love about midlife people is, you know, the longer you live, the more life humbles you. And we're just most of us, I think, are just more open about life not going the way we planned. And it just makes, it opens people's heart. And it's so different than I just remember being in my 20s and really thinking I knew things, a lot of things. <laughs> and yes. full circle, full circle. I first started working with my husband. I both worked with a career coach who's still practicing in her 80s in Oak Park, Illinois, named Robin Shearer. I still work with her from time to time, Career Enterprises. I know the name. Has she written like a zillion books? Well, she wrote this book called No More Blue Mondays, which is so awesome. It's out of print, but you can still find it. And I adore her. She's a mentor and she's wonderful. And when I was in my 20s and I went to try to figure myself out with her, I said, I think I might want to be a life coach. I was like 27. And she, in the most loving way, was like, I think you might need to like have a few more life experiences. <laughs> and then at like age 45, she was like, and now, now I think you could be a life coach. And I was like, yeah. you're right. I think I will Which be. <laughs> I think it's funny because I feel like in my 40s was the time I felt like I knew the absolute least, absolute least yeah. of my entire life. And I that's really, what I think when I was four, I felt more knowledgeable than when I was in my I think 40s. That's, I think that's the definition of wisdom. It is for me. Is no, wisdom is knowing how little you know. Yeah. <laughs> the known I, unknowns. I think so too. The known unknowns and the known yeah. unknowns. Thank you, Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. Are those the people you want to talk to? Yeah. Not the people who are like, oh, I know it all. I've seen it all. I've read it all. Yeah. Because the people who really do know it all don't come off that way anyway. No, they well, don't come off that way at all. That's, yeah. that's why the dart scene in Ted Lasso resonated so much. The whole idea of be curious, yeah. not judgmental, even though yeah. it's a spurious Whitman quote. But the bottom yeah. line is, be curious, not judgmental, had people reconsidering all sorts of how they approach a new situation. Let's ask more about it before you decide you've got it all figured out. And it's and the different parts of your brain. This is positive intelligence in a nutshell. We have this judge in our brain. It judges ourselves, others, and situations as good or bad. We move on before we even know what they are. So we yeah. do these 10 second moments in touch with our senses and then we shift into curiosity. It's exactly what you said. And I love your attention to details. I know you're like a big film guy, Doug, but I don't remember details from movies and shows. And it's really fun when you remind <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, that's my that. job to be the dope who just remembers this that. but can't find his car keys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you take wisdom from it. I mean, that is. I do. I, yeah. yeah. In fact, I wanted to ask, speaking of one other pop culture reference, what's been on my mind all year long is the Seinfeld episode, The Opposite, where George decides every decision he's made in his life has been wrong <laughs> and his instincts are all flawed. <laughs> and the way to happiness is to just take a look at what his instinct is and react in the exact opposite way. Mm, and of course, everything goes fantastic for him during the episode. Beneath that brilliant idea, I think it's some actually phenomenal psychic health. The whole idea of recognizing I can get out of this rut I can think differently. I can zig when I've zagged my whole life. I'll order the tuna instead of the egg salad or whatever it is. 
I think that's actually a really healthy thing to embrace. The whole idea of I can't always operate from position of safety and doing the opposite is a real exercise in vulnerability. Yeah. Doug, the brilliance of that episode is the way they enact that opposite thing. So, and I don't know if you're as obsessed with Seinfeld as our entire family well, as our a- kids have an encyclopedic knowledge of it also. But so George Costanza is a horrible person. He's a yeah. horrible, <laughs> horrible individual. But when they well, do the, the opposite. He's the product of his family, so we give him a break. Well, I mean, yeah. Estelle and Frank, right? But um, the way they do the opposite thing is not that he has this horrible, greedy urge and then he does something generous. It's just in these completely random details that are value neutral, right? It literally is like he is thinking about going one way and instead he goes out the other way. So there isn't any kind of morality or learning in it. And I think that's the beauty of that whole episode. Yeah, he just goes up to her in a in his pajamas and says, I'm unemployed, I live with my parents. <laughs> and she's like, well, have a seat. <laughs> but on a, on a serious note, though, how much do you think that concept can factor rather prominently into a strategy like this in terms of opening yourself up to a different choice? Yeah, I would think it's less about undoing and more about moving forward. And connecting to your why in life, your values, learning what your strengths are. There's this free values in action. The VIA Strength Assessment is a free tool. And it was actually developed by Martin Seligman and his colleagues. Martin Seligman has initially created the DSM, like our Bible for diagnostics, right, of mental health. And then in the early-ish 2000s, realized we have only studied dysfunction. We have never studied function. And it was very controversial at the time. But out of that came an evidence-based tool, this strength assessment. And we all have 24 strengths. You take this free assessment, it just ranks where are your top strengths and going to the bottom. But we all have them all. People immediately go to the bottom and they go, oh my God, it says I'm humor is my, my lowest strength. Like this was something that I experienced where I'm like, I'm calling myself a humorist. Humor is so low on my strengths profile. But really what it means is like, I'm not lighthearted. <laughs> like the, the definition is like, it's a big aha moment. You can be good at things and have talents that are not your strengths. Your top signature strengths are you being most effortlessly you, where you find ease and flow. This is golden when you're trying to figure out a career change or where you want to go with your life, is knowing where you are when either time stands still or hours pass and you don't even notice because you're so in a groove. So those are the kinds of things we would do like to make a big pivot. I love what you're saying about like, yes, like people do change. You can totally flip the script and create a new life for yourself and digging into accessing a non-judgmental part of your brain, knowing where your strengths are and working with a, a coach to help you find clarity and take action. It's a game changer. How calcified do you find that people our age are in terms of our instincts <laughs> calcified like okay we're I think, fossils. yeah calcified yeah i just Fossil. think there's a level of there's a rut i think if you've been acting a certain way yeah. for nigh on six decades that's a hard habit to break well we know so, we've got these neural pathways that are well honed and that's why it takes a lot of dedication so people who are well calcified aren't coming to me unless they want to change so they're devoted to the change process that's what i would say and our ability to change it's so exciting. We can. We can change. Doug has changed a lot. Say yeah, more. Yeah, I, I put this new shirt on this morning. No, I love how you said that. <laughs> Say more, Magda. Um, There were a lot of entrenched behaviors and personality factors from both of us that led to, first of all, I think, to us getting married and then also to us getting divorced, right? Like we have for a long time said that it was our problems that married each other. Mm. And I did not think that Doug was going to change. And I did not think that Doug was going to be any different. And 15 years later, Doug is radically different than he was when we got divorced. Uh (laughs) Well, and I feel like the dynamic, I feel like you guys helped each other with that. Like, I mean, I don't know anything about your marriage, your divorce, or your history, but just what I witnessed of the two of you anymore. I mean, it's all. Yeah, your friendship. It's so long ago, right? I mean,. (laughs) So did, did really you help happen? each other change, do you think? 
I think a lot. I mean, granted, I do think the divorce itself was a real tectonic shift in me. Yeah. Um, it was the divorce that was the big change for me. The divorce was one of the best experiences of my entire life, and it freed me from so much. Careful. Sorry, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I get it. In fact, we talk about the opposite, and I was joking about, okay, what would my ex-wife do? And I'll do the exact opposite of that. Well, the exact opposite of the opposite is to listen to your ex-wife. Uh, which would be a great offshoot for listen to your mother, by the way. Right. Well, this is what I love. I mentioned before, judge of self, judge of others, judge of circumstance. We judge circumstances as bad or good, whereas in every challenge, there can be a gift or opportunity. This is hard for people to hear when they are grieving, when they have gone through a divorce. But this is such a beautiful example. Magda saying, like, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm sure at the time, it had a lot of other feelings in, in addition. A lot of other feelings in addition, but at the time, I was still like, whoa, this is amazing. Like, okay. not not necessarily great all the time, but still just like, have you ever had an experience that was completely unnerving, but at the same time, you were like, there is no other way I would ever have had the ability to see this bit, bit of scenery or these specific yes. colors or hear this chord or something like that. Yes. Right. And so it's a little uncomfortable and it's the uncanny Valley, but there's something so beautiful that's revealed that it's totally mm. worth going through that. That's what divorce was like for me. Right. And I think that speaks to the whole idea of, is there such a thing as a good thing or a bad thing? Right. Exactly. Right. You and know, like, it's a plinko board, but who knows something wonderful can grow out of something terrible. That's right. And my graduate work was with grieving families, and I think I was drawn to it because my worst fear still is losing my loved ones, much more so than losing my own life. I was working as an intern in a peer support program for people grieving loss of a child or loss of a spouse, like untimely losses. But the hope I found there, seeing people well down the road, meeting people fresh in their loss, and them saying, like, no, you'll never be the same. This is going to be the hardest road you'll ever have to go through. And I today have a life that has meaning, that has joy. There is another side to this. That was an early huge lesson for me. Terrible things that happen that you would never choose. And you don't have to stay there forever. <laughs> People make meaning out of tragedy all the time. You know, Shirzad will talk about mothers against drunk driving, or you can talk about people who become advocates because of whether it was mental health loss or gun violence, like people make meaning and move on and find hope again. There are always gifts and opportunities. And sometimes it's like, you can believe that's true and be like, I'm not there yet. I can't imagine that I will get there, but I know it's true. And even knowing that can help. The other aspect too is what I learned was when there's a divorce and there's a confrontation about divorce, usually there's one partner who's been really unhappy for a long time. And in our situation, that was her. And I couldn't relate to that because I had been fine. And you can ascribe any level of, of oblivion on top of that. But right. the bottom line is we had the discussion after our initial confrontation or the inciting incident that led to the split. And she conveyed these ideas to me about having been unhappy for a while. And I have since gone on to be in a relationship where we split up and I was the one who was unhappy for a while. And I finally was the one who brought it to a head. And I know now from a pure experience what it's like when you finally marshal your forces and make the choice to be happier. You make the choice to recognize this is a proactive thing. And I can relate. I can relate specifically now to what Magda says she's feeling because I felt the exact same thing after the fact. Well, and for both of you, it is actually never just one person. Maybe one person feels like everything is going great, but Everything cannot be going great if the other person has wanted out of the relationship for years or, you know. Well, yeah. I wanted to ask if either of you had read Uncoupling by Diane Vaughn. Well, of course, you made me read it. I made you read it? Okay. <laughs> so Diane Vaughn wrote this book in, I believe, the mid-80s, late-80s, long before the whole Gwyneth Paltrow uncoupling <laughs> bullshit thing. Right. This um, is right after you made uncoupling. me read Harvey Haddix. So. Oh, no. <laughs> Harvey Haddix. Harville Hendricks. <laughs> Whatever, yeah. That tells um, you the impact he had on my life. Right. And Harville, Hend Harville Hendricks was fantastic for me because Harville Hendricks, um, who wrote Getting the Love You Want, 
I think he's a better relationship counselor than John Gottman, but you know, wow. don't tell John Gottman I said that. But anyway, his whole theory is that don't tell Harville um, I got his name wrong. Right. <laughs> Harville Hendricks's theory is that you marry or get in a long term relationship with the person you do because they are reflecting back to you something that you didn't get as a kid somehow. Mm. And so you get together with them because you perceive somehow that you can get from them what you were missing as a child. Mm. And so if the relationship goes well, you kind of heal each other from your childhood stuff. And if the relationship does not go well, you're hurting each other more because you're hitting each other exactly in those spots where you perceive lack. So it makes a lot of sense. So he has this counseling method and it's in the book and you basically figure out what it is that you were missing that you that attracted you to the other person. And then if you're willing to work on it, you can work on it together. But when when Doug and I did the book, what it made me realize was I didn't care what Doug was lacking from childhood. And that freed me up a lot to just be like, oh, here I am. But to go back well, you to did uncoupling. get the love you want, right? So it worked. I did. I mean, and you know, everybody asks, like, so how it did took you about find, 17 years how or whatever? Did you find but yeah, the I mean, love of your life. And I say, well, I developed a crush on this guy in the fall of 1990 and tried to talk to him and he didn't talk to me. And then I just waited. And 30 years later, he called me. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> so awesome. But so the book Uncoupling by Diane Vaughn is just a timeline that she has written based on interviewing a whole bunch of Mm. couples. And she basically put together two timelines. So uh, she starts out with the person who begins to sense that there's a problem first and what their whole process is. And then the person who is the second one to figure out that something's wrong. And of course, like that person senses it, but they don't, you know, they can't admit that it's a problem with the relationship. They think it's a problem with themselves or they're living in the wrong place or they don't have the right car, you know, whatever you talk yourself into. And it's very non-judgmental. And I have found it extremely useful for a lot of people I know who are getting divorced or splitting up from long-term partnerships, because it just sort of tells you, these are the phases you're going to go through. And this is also where your partner is, or your soon-to-be I feel like this could totally apply to, like, women I work with, especially will stay in a job for like 20 years. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Lots of similar dynamic there too. Yeah. And I think it would be really useful to have something like that. The difference would be that in um, uncoupling with a relationship, the other person has feelings when it's your job. The job doesn't have any feelings. But they do. They do. They're teams and they, there are feelings, you know, about like, leaving the kids or leaving the mom or leaving this person who gave you your brain. I mean, there's lots of feelings and they do go both ways sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think couples work would be amazing and I would, I can imagine myself going and getting more training specifically on that. I am really a proponent of certifications and trainings for coaches. You don't need them. Anyone could be a coach, but I want to have confidence that what I'm offering has a leg to stand on in addition to my, yeah, what I personally. Well, it's a process, right? Yeah. Well, and speaking of process, too, I think we touched on an interesting point about Magda waiting 30 years for her dream man to call her, which led to the whole idea of patience versus instant gratification. Oh, yes. How much conversation do you have with people about let's not be demanding on ourselves? Let's recognize that this is a process and it takes some time. How reassuring do you have to be in that role as someone who says, look, it's a marathon, not a sprint? Right. I do a lot of short term work with people, which actually means it's successful. Like when somebody can activate and move on quickly, that's awesome. I think in these positive intelligence groups, I do this group coaching, everyone's really eager to have the tools. So it's more like just, it is going to take a while. This isn't about mastery. This is about learning. And what I love is the idea that Either you're sad because you didn't use your tools, you didn't, or you couldn't use your tools. It's not a reflection of you. It's just like at the gym, like that weight was too heavy for you right now. And that helps people just like stay with it. So I haven't had a lot of people coming to me like, I want change. I want it tomorrow. It's kind of <laughs> the, it's, it's more the opposite. Like, and I think at our age too, it's scary to change. So it's more like almost the opposite calling me and making an appointment is their first step because they feel so stuck and they don't know if they have the energy 
to get unstuck. But they're willing to put in the longer haul. They're not going to come at you and say, this needs to happen right away because life is short. I mean, I think if they did, I just think people get excited when they begin to take first steps. And so that is energizing. And and I guess what I say to people too is when they feel really stuck, when you start to take steps, you get more information, which impacts what you do next. Just standing here, staring out at this whole vista, of course, you have no idea where to go. You have to start moving forward. And then with each step, you get more information about which way is going to be the right way for you. And how many conversations do you have about once those steps happen? Let's not compare yourself to other people. I mean, we're all um, human. Like I'm susceptible to that too, whether it's on Instagram. And, you know, I think comparison is, is such a lonely feeling. And if you can just take a minute and access empathy for yourself and for that, even that person. And no, it all goes back to that I'll be happy when. It's this big lie that if we get what somebody else has we will be happy. And the research just doesn't bear that out. You can be happy, but changing your life and your is in the day to day. It's not in the peak moments. So looking at somebody else's peak moments or their dream home or their vacation, you just have to circle back to that's a lie. And my <laughs> job is to work on my mood every day and be able to better enjoy what is actually happening around me Versus this fantasy that we're projecting onto. Yeah. Spend less time wondering why all your friends are vacationing in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, meanwhile, your day-to-day -day life is a vacation in Europe to someone else, right? It's like, yeah. you know, that's a whole other bag, right? Like half the people <laughs> I know who are traveling come back with COVID. You know, I mean. Yeah. Everyone's going to Italy. Specifically mm. Italy. I don't know why. I've had dozens of people going to Italy that I saw. And then I just saw a thing about how they're worried that Italy's going to have the hottest summer ever and <sighs> all this kind of stuff. And I thought, wow, I'm seeing a lot of people going to Italy. This is hey, not. Real talk. My, my good friend Wendy Ahrens took a great trip to Italy that she bought on a package at Costco. So check it out. Oh, it was maybe amazing. That's why everybody <laughs> bought their package on Costco. That would make maybe a lot it of was sense. like really nice hotels. She was like, "It's like they thought that Costco was like royalty or something." Like, I mean, every oh, hotel they'd have funny. like little extras, and I know, who knew? <laughs> Since you've made this pivot yourself and launched yourself into coaching, what about it? Do you feel has changed you in terms yeah. of? The physician healing herself in a sense. Yeah, I can tell you, I'm definitely not a physician, but thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, a pseudo physician, heal thyself. Zest is one of the strengths on the strength profile. And that was so low for me in the pandemic and in the beginning of this journey. And I will tell you, I love the people who coach with me. I leave a coaching session so energized and they fill me with zest. So in real time, I am using my strengths, my top signature strengths, and that energizes you. For me, it's coaching. But for somebody else, it's getting into the minutia of a contract, you know, whatever it is. Finding a way to use your strengths and live into those every day just does wonders for your enjoyment of your life. So this work energizes me. I think it's so interesting. I love seeing people you know, make progress. It's just fills me with hope. It's an exercise in hope every day. And you too are an ex. I mean, being with you two, a, a divorced couple who are such good friends who collaborate, like this is amazing and so awesome. So I really enjoy just hanging out with you two. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank oh, you very I appreciate much. appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. We met in what, 96. So yeah. it's 27 years yeah, in the making. Yeah, that's time. when my husband and I met too, 96. Well, I think what happened was too, and I won't dwell on it too much, but you know those the 36 questions you're supposed to ask yeah. to make you fall in love? Yeah. I think those happened de facto because she and I were working on a project together oh, and confined yeah. in a conference room and just yeah. opened our souls to each other every day, eight hours a day. That, you and that should just write that led essay. To a, and this has been great. It's been great to get to know you better. I've known you peripherally for a long time, but talking to you for this past hour has been really helpful to me both as a middle-aged person, and as someone who has a lot of questions to answer. I'm really happy for you that you've made this pivot and it's you've settled into it so comfortably. I hope everybody, anybody who's kind of at a logjam can listen to this and figure out a way to get over the top and recognize there's more to come. 
I love that. Thank you both. It was such a delight. And I coach via Zoom. So people can find me at listenlifecoaching.com. Is there any place on social media that you tend to concentrate or yeah, should well, we just Anne go to that Imig. website? Anne, no E, I-M-I-G. You'll find a lot of stuff if you Google it. And it's pretty much all good and normal, I think. <laughs> Last I checked. Boy, the, I the checked. hard sell. <laughs> Please come work with me. I'm mostly normal. Thank you for listening to episode 11 of the When the Flames Go Up podcast with Magda Pechenia and me, Doug French. Our guest has been the mostly normal and Imig. Tune in next week. We'll be back again with another person who's getting their head right. Until then, bye-bye.